0: One of the golden threads of our society when we talk about values is ensuring that someone who has a a serious issue or a significant case gets a fair hearing. And that's at the heart of what this funding will ensure. I mean, if we don't give people their fair go before the law, it runs the very real risk of sending thousands of people who should have been protected here as refugees back to their home country and the prospect of danger or death.
1: That was David Mann, the Executive Director of Refugee Legal, an independent community legal centre specialising in refugee law. We'll hear more from him later in the program. Refugee Legal is one of the key organisations involved in the Legacy Caseload Initiative, a two-year program to help asylum seekers living in Victoria get the legal assistance they need to have their claims for protection assessed fairly. Welcome to the Access to Justice podcast from Victoria Legal Aid. I'm Louise Bennett. In this episode, we hear from four legal professionals working in various ways and capacities with asylum seekers residing in Victoria on bridging visas and who are awaiting notice from the Commonwealth Department of Immigration and Border Protection that they must lodge an application for temporary protection. Every one of these applicants arrived by boat between the 13th of August 2012 and the 1st of January 2014 and has been in Australia since. They are known as the legacy caseload arrivals. Executive Director of Civil Justice, Access and Equity at Victoria Legal Aid, Dan Nicholson, tells us more about the arrivals and what organisations are getting together to assist them.
2: The Legacy Caseload refers to a group of about 30,000 asylum seekers who arrived in Australia by boat but whose claims for protection haven't yet been processed. Changes to the law have been put in place which make it more difficult for people to review their claims and to have their claims properly heard but also to get legal assistance through that process. There are about 11,000 of those asylum seekers living in Victoria. So the idea of the Legacy Caseload initiative is to find the way to best support those asylum seekers to make sure that those with valid claims get protection in Australia. And so for a number of months a group of different legal organisations have come together, so that includes Victoria Legal Aid, Refugee Legal, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and private practitioners through the Law Institute of Victoria. What we've done is divide the work amongst the group. Refugee Legal is helping a large number of people through clinic staff by volunteers to make their applications. Justice Connect is helping to refer people to pro bono and other private lawyers who might be able to provide some further assistance to those who need it most. And Victoria Legal Aid will assist people to judicially review claims if we think decisions are being made unlawfully about their claims for protection.
1: Under the Legacy Caseload Initiative, Victoria Legal Aid disperses funds to partner organisations under the National Partnership Agreement on Legal Assistance Services. Dan Nicholson has more on how the funding is used.
2: The money comes from the National Partnership Agreement on Legal Assistance Services. And one of the things that the Commonwealth said as part of that agreement was that migration law is a Commonwealth priority in the civil law area. But the National Partnership Agreement also requires us to, as a sector, to come together to find innovative ways to solve emerging legal issues and to jointly plan how we'll respond to those legal issues. And the Legacy Caseload Initiative absolutely fits that bill.
1: Aside from providing much-needed help to a very vulnerable group of people, the Legacy Caseload Initiative serves a very important civic function.
2: Whatever one thinks about asylum-seeker policy in this country, I don't think anyone would disagree with the proposition that the government should behave lawfully and should process people's legal claims in accordance with the law of the Parliament of Australia. And this project is ultimately about doing exactly that.
1: The asylum seekers getting legal assistance in preparing their applications aren't the only beneficiaries of the initiative. The Commonwealth Department that has to process the many thousands of expected claims will be able to do so more efficiently if the lengthy and complex application forms are prepared by trained lawyers and paralegals. What do the individuals who fall in the legacy caseload arrival category need to do to apply for temporary protection in Australia? In this new, fast-track process, in which many claims must be submitted and processed in a relatively brief time span, who approves or rejects each claim? Senior lawyer Artie Chetty from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, or ASRC, who are also assisting a large number of people with their applications through clinics,
3: explains. At the primary stage, an applicant would lodge their application form and a statement of claims, and then they would have an interview with a delegate or, we might say, a case officer from the Department of Immigration and Border Protection that delegate would, following the interview, make a decision as to whether that particular applicant was a refugee or was owed complementary protection. If the delegate finds that they're not, then the matter is referred to that limited review authority, the IAA, and it's at that point, at the review point, that there is no right to an interview or a hearing. There's no right to submit new information, and there's all sorts of complexity around how you would classify new information, what you can and can't submit. It is a very difficult concept to explain to applicants. The role of the
1: Immigration Assessment Authority, or IAA, is to conduct reviews of these fast-tracked decisions. David Mann from Refugee Legal expands on the difficulty of what's being asked of temporary protection seekers and why they need assistance.
0: It is absolutely fundamental that anyone that is wanting to seek asylum in Australia have legal help to do so because the requirements are so technical and onerous. I mean, the paperwork itself runs into 62 pages of forms which incorporate 184 questions. And on top of that, someone then has to essentially present a detailed written statement of their fears of returning to their home country and all in English. There are multiple potential barriers to someone both understanding the process and then being able to engage in that process by both complying with the requirements, such as these forms and a statement, but also other aspects of the process, such as engaging in requests for further information and the like.
1: Competence in the English language can be a huge barrier for these asylum seekers in making their claims, let alone in understanding the actual claims process and the implications of the decisions that ultimately are made on their futures. Beyond the application form and statutory declaration, there are stringent rules about supporting documents, in particular identification documents. The ASRC's Arti Chetty explains what this means for legacy caseload arrivals.
3: There are times when an applicant, when a person is able to provide documents, identity documents or letters of support that might support their claims. However, there are many times that they are unable to do so. And in particular, in relation to the production of identity documents, the Department of Immigration has created a new framework around that as well that is detailed in Section 91W of the Migration Act. What Section 91W says is, firstly, that you have to produce identity documents to support your identity and now this is difficult because many people do not have identity documents. They do allow applicants to provide a reasonable explanation for why they haven't provided identity documents. In cases where people do provide identity documents, if that document or those documents are found to be, the word used is bogus, the Department of Immigration is required as a mandatory thing to refuse that application. And also that particular applicant then is excluded from review at the IAA. It's a very harsh outcome for people seeking asylum and, in our view, doesn't necessarily reflect whether the claims being made by that person in terms of their refugee claims are genuine. It doesn't reflect the need for protection. It also concerns us that in requiring people to provide identity documents when they often do not have documents, they may be putting family members in their country of origin at risk to try and obtain those documents as well.
1: These boat arrivals, whether from Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, Iraq or other troubled places, have other barriers to surmount.
0: Some of the other barriers include that many of the people who come to Australia seeking asylum have been through incredibly traumatic circumstances. I mean, some people that we're talking about have grown up under severe oppression, have witnessed family members being persecuted, including being killed. So there are often very significant trauma issues. There can also be issues concerning torture and also other forms of emotional distress that could be part of the experience of having had to flee, having been uprooted from one's homeland and being forced to flee and seek safety. On top of that, there are also often potential cultural barriers. I mean, the legal process that we have here is so stringent and so particular and complex that it may be, for many people, quite an alien process just to understand the requirements, let alone to meet them. I should also say that there are other issues, too, which can relate, for example, to age. Some of the people that we help are very young, so they're, they're you know, what we call minors. There can be unaccompanied minors um, or children or adolescents that need to apply or very elderly people. So that's another issue that could come to bear in terms of barriers. There are also gender issues. It might be that we're helping a woman who has been the victim of terrible gender-based violence, for example, sexual assault, and it may be culturally very difficult for that woman to actually feel comfortable or able to disclose what she's been through. So there are so many different potential barriers at play at the one time. It it is fundamental uh, that for someone to get a fair go before the law, get a fair hearing, in relation to what are often life or death matters, that they get this vital legal help.
1: That was David Mann from Refugee Legal. To assist such large numbers of asylum seekers in their bid for protection in Australia, Victoria Legal Aid has had to make very efficient use of the funding provided out of the Legacy Caseload Initiative. Victoria Legal Aid's Dan Nicholson.
2: So with the Victoria Legal Aid funds, we won't be hiring lawyers to work in the private sector. We'll be hiring lawyers at Refugee Legal, a community legal centre, principally to supervise and support clinics that are run by a very large number of volunteers. So clinics that help legacy caseload asylum seekers fill out their applications for protection. We'll also be funding a lawyer at Justice Connect and their role is to make links with pro bono lawyers but also with private lawyers who might work for a reduced fee for those people who need more assistance. And then it'll also support expansion of our in-house practice here at Victoria Legal Aid, to run judicial review proceedings, to test the lawfulness of government actions, but also to support those clinics run by Refugee Legal.
1: Because the Legacy Caseload Initiative seeks to provide legal assistance to 11,000 asylum seekers currently in Victoria in a relatively short time frame, a legal clinic model pioneered by Refugee Legal has been adopted.
0: We have a special innovative service delivery model, which is called TPV clinics. Some of these people are right here today in our offices, meeting with legal advisors and interpreters at one of our clinics, which have been made possible by this funding. And these people have previously been given information. They've been able to tell their stories and they've been assessed by us for assistance based on their need and their disadvantage, but they've all had their details for themselves and each family member documented. And by the end of the day, all of these people can expect to walk out of here with a completed application for a protection visa, which is the foundation for their case for safety in Australia. So this model of service has only been made possible when legal advisers, who are volunteers trained by us, refugee legal, are supervised by our experienced lawyers who work here. And it's an innovative model, which means that people most in need get the help as quickly as they can and it's making sure that they understand the process and they have this completed application to lodge with the department which is foundational to their bid to stay here and be protected. We now have over 400 legal and non-legal staff working together with us, fully trained by us. These volunteers come from all walks of life but they include lawyers from corporate law firms giving their time for free. I mean, they include law students, they include just general members of the public, retired lawyers, so many people from different walks of life who understand the challenges that people seeking asylum face in our community and have signed up and rolled up their sleeves to help us, to help these people seeking asylum.
1: That was Refugee Legal's David Mann. For the lawyers and paralegals involved in the clinics... Processing these large numbers has meant changes to the very way they practise. They've had to adjust to some fundamental shifts to their workflow and pace. The
3: ASRC's Artie Chetty explains. What has unfolded for many pro bono services and others is the need to meet the needs of these many people as well as we can. But what has transpired is that our work has changed significantly from providing ongoing legal assistance to a new format that we refer to as limited assistance. In order to meet the need, our practice as lawyers has actually significantly changed. I mentioned before that ASRC runs fast-track clinics, as does refugee legal. The clinic structure to providing advice is very different to the way you would meet clients that are ongoing clients that you represent on an ongoing basis, you have more time to see. You might see them on different days to deal with different issues and put their documents together over a longer amount of time. Whereas people that you're seeing in a clinic format, you necessarily have a more limited amount of time to see because there are many more people waiting to enter that clinic. So the work that gets done is very good work, but is truncated. It needs to be done quickly and will not allow for a lot of the conversations that you would have with clients that are part of other processes.
1: Among the private law practices that are taking part in the Legacy Caseload Initiative is Karina Ford Immigration Lawyers. As well as directly helping Legacy Caseload arrivals, Karina Ford also helps supervise non-migration lawyers helping out the asylum seekers in a clinic setting. We asked the firm's founder, Karina Ford, about how lawyers from the private sector fit into the mix.
4: Well, interestingly, we talked actually amongst our practice and said there must be a way that we can get firms within the private sector to start to assist. And so I'm involved with the Law Institute of Victoria Refugee and Immigration Committee. And so we put a proposal forward to consider, one, a reduced rate scheme, and to how can we involve more private practitioners in it. And from there, it's developed that side of the legacy caseload group in terms of growing more firms involved in it and also coming down to working out, I guess, a way to charge a set fee price for those that may fall within the reduced rate work. Some of the referrals come directly from ASOC and refugee legal, so where they may have a case that, they need assistance with for example it might be a conflict of interest case um, or a case where they really feel that it needs particular assistance in which case we would generally take their word that that person falls within our pro bono scheme sometimes it's in relation to the reduced rate it's looking at things like are they employed they may have some family assistance here because some of that caseload actually does have relatives in Australia that might be established so it's really just making, I guess in some ways, um, a judgement call as to the need. We offer instalments as well. So, I mean, I really would say you've got to pay this all upfront, even if it's on the reduced rate. I think that just enables applicants to, if they want to get assistance and maybe have relatives who can help out, they're able to do so. And it's really to ease the burden on the centres, really. How are things going so far for the legacy caseload
1: arrivals who are putting in their claims? David Mann.
0: Well, look, it's early days, but I'm delighted to say that already we're getting some fantastic results. I mean, it was just last week that a father and son got temporary protection visas as a result of this work. And, in fact, I'd have to say, almost on a weekly basis now, we're getting a number of people that we help through this process getting temporary protection. It's having immediate results for the people who have helped, this good news has just been overwhelming in terms of the effect for them. Not only a reprieve, I guess, but that sense that they can now start to get on with creating a future here.
1: What has the Legacy Caseload Initiative meant for participating members of Victoria's legal community? What have been the lessons learned? And could this collaborative model be a template for emerging legal issues in the future? Karina Ford, followed by the
4: ASRC's Artie Chetty and Victoria Legal Aid's Dan Nicholson. I think Victoria is unique in Australia in how it focuses on issues of social justice and I think the legal community is very good at being able to come together. I don't think actually there is a similar system currently in place in the other states at this point in time. The purpose of sharing information in a caseload such as this has been greatly beneficial both for the educating of lawyers but also then that giving back and I think sometimes the public doesn't realise how much lawyers do give back.
3: I think everyone recognises that we can't meet the legal needs of these people as individual organisations. We need to cooperate and we need to ensure that the work that we all do is complementing each other and I think that the networks that are being created as a result of this need are really encouraging and the project that is unfolding and responding to this very complex and you know incredibly important need
2: is great this is a great example of the legal assistance sector and the legal profession more generally coming together to plan together how to deal with an emerging legal issue and a really significant emerging legal issue of people that are particularly disadvantaged and particularly need help. And so in that way, it's a real model for the way we can plan a range of other projects in the future. It also balances the different strengths of our different services. So really it's bringing together the best of these organisations and their best skills to make a big impact for the community.
1: The Access to Justice podcast is produced by Victoria Legal Aid. Copyright 2016. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. For more information or to refer a client to the service, visit www.legalaid.vic.gov.au.